Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. Hi! These are the last episodes of Queer Serial, leading up to the final episodes on Stonewall's 52nd anniversary. Happy Pride! And then there will be a big finale episode shortly after. When it's all over, my Patreon will be the place to find new bonus episodes and some special interviews. Check out patreon.com slash queer serial. 
And while you're listening to the show, check out the podcast on Instagram at Queer Serial to put faces to the names and see some of the real events covered in the show. And finally, before we start, this podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. So, the podcast has identifying terms that may now be out of date. How long do your relationships last? What are your relationships with your parents? Did you have domineering mothers or passive fathers? Okay, okay, one at a time. Um, as long as any other relationship lasts, as far as parents, we have our differences just the same as any other young person and her parents. My parents didn't make me this way. Despite my guest speaking for the class today, abnormal psychology isn't something I experience. In fact... Pass these down, please. Mark an X on your slip of paper if all of your experiences have been heterosexual. Mark a Y if all of your experiences have been homosexual. And an XY if you've had both kinds of experiences. Then fold up the paper and give them back to me. Well, this class is statistically normal. One out of every 10 people is gay. To those of you who marked Y and XY, you're not alone. To those of you who marked X, heterosexuals, you are not alone. Martha Shelley is booking tons of speaking engagements as the new president of the New York Daughters of Belitis chapter. She speaks in schools, at special events, and even on the radio. She's only 25, and along with her busy speaking schedule, she's still holding down a day job at Bernard College, where she remains in the closet. One morning, sitting at her desk while having her coffee, the 65-year-old administrator comes in, takes off her coat, and says hello to Martha. Guess what? Um, what? This guy was here from WOR Radio last night interviewing the girls at Plimpton Hall. Oh. Yes, I must stay up late tonight and listen to this radio program. Shit, she's going to hear me. Martha says to Joan Kent over the phone, another daughter in her chapter. It's already been taped, right? Yes, why don't you call the radio show and explain what happened, and I'm sure they can remove that segment. Well, I'll think about it. She waits until 5 p.m., and then nervously stands up and goes into her boss's office. I'm going to be on that radio show tonight. Why? I'm representing an organization called the Daughters of Belitis. What's that? It's a civil rights organization for lesbians. Oh, that's nice, dear. It's wonderful that you young people are taking up all these causes. She gives Martha a wink. Now help me on with my coat. I've got to catch my bus. Later, Martha will hear that her boss lives with a well-known businesswoman. Each victory, Martha finds, gives her the courage for the next one. Since her first Belitis meeting, Martha has been challenging herself and the organization. She arrived in 1967, Martha Altman. She signed in for DOB leader Joan Kent, whose real name was Jean Powers. Martha wrote, Martha... Oh no, you need to sign in with a pseudonym. A pseudonym? Why? 
The FBI could compromise the mailing list. The FBI? Really? What are they going to do? She finished signing her name, writing Shelley instead of Altman, but then added, Care of Martha Altman. Soon after, she'll decide that if the FBI wants to find her, they probably will. So she'll change her pseudonym to her legal name. Walking into that first meeting in the DOB office on 7th Avenue, Martha saw about 10 women smoking cigarettes and chatting. Like many of them, Martha is really here to meet women. It's a decent alternative to the loud and sketchy mafia-run bars. Tell us about yourself. Um, I'm Jewish, and I look it. (laughs) She quickly discovers that the women of the DOB appreciate her for her personality. They listen when she explains her stance against conventional marriage and recreating heteronormative relationships through butch femme roles, even though many of the daughters don't agree with her. While Joan Kent is rather waspy and votes Republican under her legal name, Martha Shelley wears cut-off jeans and tie-dyed tank tops and reads the feminine mystique. Being gay blows the barriers on sexuality. The civil rights movement blows the barriers on who we get to be friends with and make our lives with. The women's movement is challenging our roles in this society. The yippies and the left-wing folks question politics. Let's question everything. The whole perception of reality I was raised with is fucked up, totally crazy, certifiably insane. Martha sneaks into the Columbia men's dorm and does LSD with her friend from the Student Homophile League. They walk into homophile meetings arm in arm, man and woman, just to stir up the uptight gay kids. She takes the job as DOB chapter president because no one else wants it, not even her. She just wants a platform to speak on even at the risk of losing her job. She's lucky she has a cool boss. Coming by work isn't easy for queer people. Sylvia, a 17-year-old woman, walks the streets in New York. She was once living as an 11-year-old boy who ran away from home because her grandmother didn't approve of her feminine behavior. The street queens who adopted her named her Sylvia. Working Times Square, men pick her up. You became a street walker. You stand down in the street and you make money. That, at that age, it was easy to make money. <laughs> that is the real Sylvia Rivera. Miss Rivera's audio is used courtesy of Making Gay History. Find the Making Gay History podcast on all major podcast platforms and at makinggayhistory.com. Walking down 42nd, you can get arrested just for looking too queer. And Sylvia is taken in several times. Prostitution, you know, bullshit, loitering, nothing major, you know. I don't know how many times my grandmother had to come and bail me out of jail. She was there. She always came and bailed me out. She says, oh, that's my grandson. I have to take him out. If you walk down 42nd Street and even look, like a faggot, you were going to jail. And I refused to pass. Oh, I went to jail a lot of times. It's fun being Sylvia. It's fun playing the game. Trans people and queer folks of color continue to handle a disproportionate amount of discrimination. For white gay men, 
more barriers are broken. And it seems the era of hiding in the shadows is coming to an end for a lucky few. The public has consistently heard from cis gay white men on TV programs like Confidential File, Showcase, The Rejected, The David Susskind Show, The Les Crane Show, and CBS's The Homosexuals. The underground culture of gay men is detailed in publications like Time and Life magazines. The public hears directly from gay men on radio programs like Live and Let Live and the new Symposium on WBAI, which features gay men talking and using their real names in a weekly show with the aim of inspiring a sense of social identification within our subculture. Gay male voices are now pretty much everywhere. Almost none of this media reported on lesbians, bisexuals, or transgender people. But the barrier has been broken for some, and now that the underworld of gay men has been revealed to the public, openly gay male characters begin to appear in films. And finally, a full cast of them on stage in 1968. An openly gay playwright is finally getting a play produced about homosexuals who mostly behave unapologetically queer. It's witty, acidic, pretty white, but honest and controversial, and playing off-Broadway. Mary, it takes a fairy to make something pretty. Previously, the trip will remain closed until their case is heard. In the meantime, the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, NACO, hold their national homophile event inside the trip. But honest, the more Ray is also teased, she knows she'll have to leave problem. her grandmother. Ray Rivera runs away to Times Square. She goes there to make money to survive. The camarones are coming. They're coming to get us. Okay, I'll walk. I'll walk. In Philly, other women launched the Homophile Action League after a bar raid because they feel that all the Daughters of Belitis ever do is send campaign literature, and they don't respond quickly enough to actual requests for gay legal help. Homosexuality is, in fact, a mental illness. Dr. Charles Socarides is a New York psychoanalyst. They are taught that no man is born homosexual, with author-playwright Gore Vidal, who thinks otherwise. We have a sexual ethic which is the joke of the world. The, the idea of marriage is, is obsolete in our society, breaking of the moral fiber of the country that these... Uh, commentators speak of is one of the healthiest things that's begun to happen. Every week, these bar owners meet at a different bar. They set up a phone tree system to alert each other of ABC agents on their way to raid. By the summer of 62, they incorporate their group as a non-profit, the Tavern Guild of San Francisco. Look at all these officers demanding money from gay bars, and then when they walk out with their little Christmas bonus, Gayola, got ya! And yet... Despite many of the accused getting away with the Gayola payoffs they extorted from gay bars, large payoff networks in the SFPD slow to a halt. Nationwide ring preying on prominent deviates, prominent theatrical personalities and officers of the armed services, all homosexual, have been the victims of an extortion ring that has operated throughout the nation for nearly 10 years. There's a mafia boss running a shakedown ring targeting some of the highest profile closeted homosexuals in the nation. Some suspect that this boss is shaking down America's biggest closet gays themselves. The FBI directors put a pin in that, too. They occupy key positions with oil companies or the FBI. It's true. If anyone ever suggests Hoover is homosexual, he sends FBI agents to intimidate them, telling them to put up or shut up. Are you the editor of one magazine? By the way, gentlemen, would you have any objection if this interview had been taped? 
I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. Who was it who always used to say, you show me a happy homosexual and I'll show you a gay corpse? The Boys and the Band opens off-Broadway on April 14th, 1968. It's named after a line from A Star is Born starring Judy Garland. It's the downbeat club at three o'clock in the morning and you're singing for yourself and for the boys in the band. On opening night, the writer Mart Crowley is chatting with the director, Bob Moore. Mart says, you think they'll laugh? Bob says, they've been laughing at fags since Aristophanes. They're not going to stop tonight. You're stoned and you're late. What I am, Michael, is a 32-year-old, ugly, pockmarked Jew fairy. And if it takes me a while to pull myself together, and if I smoke a little grass before I get up the nerve to show my face to the world, it's nobody's goddamn business but my own. And how are you this evening? They don't stop laughing tonight. By the way, these clips are from the 1970 movie. Read the credits for more info. Many gays see all the self-loathing in Crowley's characters as counterintuitive to the movement, but most gays can find some truth in it. The play is a hit. Harold and Michael end the play with a fight about self-loathing, leaving the audience thinking about queerness as a state of existence rather than a sickness to be cured or a sin to wash away. That's it, you know. <laughs> if we could just learn not to hate ourselves quite so very much. Crowley shows his audience that homosexuality is a permanent and powerful influence, a lifelong part of one's identity, a point further supported by the fact that his characters, and this is groundbreaking, his gay characters don't commit suicide or get killed off before the final curtain. Their lives go on after the play is over. Audiences leave thinking about what it's like to live a full lifetime as a gay person. What problems exist in the day-to-day? How are their friendships strained or strengthened by their queerness? Why can they be so vicious? Perhaps it's part of their survival? I'll see you tomorrow. No, I think I'm going to be awfully busy. I may even go back to Washington. Got a heavy date in Lafayette Square? Emory. What? Forget it. Here we get to Washington. I'd like you to meet my wife. Right, good. Oh, that'd be fun, wouldn't it, Hank? Mmm, they'd love to meet him. Or her. I have a special problem with pronouns. How many S's are there in the word pronoun? How'd you like to kiss my ass? That's got two or more S's in it. How'd you like to blow me? So how do your wife got locked you up? Faggots! As Boys in the Band hits the stage, James Baldwin's new book, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, hits bookshelves. 
His new book follows the story of a bisexual actor from Harlem living in Greenwich Village. Baldwin writes about white privilege, incarceration, and religion. The book is likely sitting on one of the eight little bookshelves in the newest village bookstore, the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop. Over the past year, Craig Rodwell from the Julius Sippen has been saving for the radical storefront he dreamed of Mattachine starting. Turned down by the organization, he dropped out and opened his own bookstore on Thanksgiving Day, 1967, at 291 Mercer Street. It began with just a few shelves selling Baldwin, James Barr, Donald Webster Quarry, and the Wolfenden Report. Craig also carries publications from all of the homophile organizations, no matter how conservative or radical, and many of the gay slogan buttons like Randy sells in his shop. He carries some erotic literature too, but as a rule, nothing that vilifies or fetishizes queers, nothing with third sex or perversion in the titles. There's a bulletin board announcing gay events, free coffee and cookies welcome his guests, who meet his schnauzer, Albert. Albert is gay and very promiscuous. Craig's former lover, Harvey Milk, comes by often, enjoying this new gay community center. It'll inspire his own in a few years. Put a pin in that. Occasionally, Craig will arrive to work to see the windows broken or slurs and swastikas spray-painted on the door. But he keeps the blinds open and proudly lets the sunlight in. He's here every day from noon to 10 p.m. And still an activist at heart, Craig keeps himself busy writing his own newsletter. The February 1968 issue of the New York Hymnal marks the beginning of a new publishing venture directed towards the homosexual community. New York Hymnal is published by the Oscar Wilde Memorial Bookshop. Why was the name Hymnal chosen? Because Hymnal will have a religious fervor and crusading spirit in its treatment of the homosexual way of life and the homophile movement. We will make no pretense of speaking to the heterosexual and trying to persuade him to accept homosexuals. Hymnal is solely concerned with what the gay person thinks of himself. The community has the economic, political, and social potential to shape its own future. This potential only needs to be encouraged and channeled. Craig immediately confronts big issues. Although it has been common knowledge among New York's homosexual community for many years, the mafia, or syndicate, control of New York City's gay bars has only recently been brought to the public's attention. The New York Times, starting in early October of 1967, ran a number of front-page articles on the mafia, and in particular, the mafia's control of gay bars. The Times named Johnny Sonny Franzies as kingpin of the syndicate's gay bar operations on Long Island, and in subsequent articles, they identified the heads of the Manhattan gay bar syndicate. The stone wall on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village is one of the larger and more financially lucrative of the mafia's gay bars in Manhattan. New York Hymnal received a report from a reliable source over a month ago that the stone wall was going to be closed by the health department because it was alleged that a number of cases of hepatitis, which has reached epidemic proportions among the homosexual community, had been traced to the stone wall's bar. It was reported that the stone wall does not wash the glasses. 
The case of the Stonewall only points up the fact that the community cannot rely on governmental agencies to break the mafia control of gay bars. Until the day comes that payoff and collusion between the syndicate and governmental agencies are ended. How can you identify a gay bar as being mafia? 1. When you walk in, there will be at least one or two gray goons sitting near the door, checking out everyone as they enter. If it's a mafia private club like the Stonewall or the Bonsoir, and you are wearing a jacket and tie and don't fit the mafia stereotype of a fairy, the goons at the door will refuse to let you in. 2. The bar will be dark to hide the filth and to give the place an atmosphere of anything goes. 3. On Friday and Saturday nights, it will cost you 3 or $4 to get in, and they will give you two tickets for drinks. 4. There will very likely be dancing in the back room, hidden from view when you enter the bar. 5. Policemen will make periodic and mysterious appearances to talk with the goons at the door. 6. The general atmosphere will be one of licentiousness and gloom. Gay bars in Manhattan's Greenwich Village that generally fit the above description include the Stonewall, Bonsoir, Danny's, The Den, The Skull, Telstar, Keller's, Checkmate, Seventeen Barrow, and The Sea Colony. The situation as it now exists makes it virtually impossible for a legitimate businessman to open a gay bar with a healthy social atmosphere. And the only way the situation is going to change for the better is for homosexuals to stop patronizing bars run by concealed mafia interests. We cannot rely on governmental agencies in this fight. The mafia monopoly on gay bars has existed in New York for decades, and the city government has shown no interest. When the Department of Investigations of the City of New York was asked if they were planning any steps to break the mafia monopoly, we received the standard, no comment. In the following issues of Hymnal, Craig continues to press the issue. Since the founding of the Tavern Guild of San Francisco, the gay bars in that city have become models for the rest of the country in what a gay bar can and should be. Founded in 1964, the Tavern Guild of San Francisco quickly became the focal point of the homosexual community in San Francisco in its fight to improve operating conditions and atmospheres of the bars. The TGSF is composed of owners and operators of gay bars and taverns. It protects its member businesses from harassment or abuse by authorities, which has virtually eliminated the problem of payoffs. The TGSF's main contribution to the improvement in the social atmosphere in San Francisco has been its firmness in resisting infiltration efforts by organized crime. Many of the bars have benefit nights for the various homophile organizations and donate one night's profits to them. They also show old movies, have 10-cent beer nights, support the homophile publications in SF by advertising in them, and in general, make their customers feel welcome and at home. In three years, SIR, the Society for Individual Rights, has opened a community center with varied social activities, a theater, a storefront, and has become a force to be reckoned with in San Francisco. Candidates for public office seek their support. The same thing can and must be done in New York City. A Tavern Guild of New York is impossible at the moment for the simple fact that there is only one gay bar in the city which is not mafia-run. Over at the Mattachine New York offices, their newsletter of March 1968 announces... Gay bar closed. 
The police have been taking action against mafia-operated bars and recently closed the Long Island Rail Bar and Grill in Brooklyn. The actual charges against the bar were that homosexuals were permitted to conduct themselves in an indecent manner, and that men kissed, danced together, and solicited. The courts have ruled recently that bars cannot be closed for those acts, but a charge that men made out in the booths at the rear of the premise provided a reason for the closing. The manager of the bar was Edward F. P. Murphy, also known as The Skull, an ex-convict who is alleged to have been the head of the National Ring, which recently was active in extorting money from homosexuals. Murphy has served prison terms for larceny and for carrying deadly weapons, when he was arrested for impersonating an officer and for extortion at the New York Hilton Hotel, where he was working as a house detective. MSNY has been informed that Murphy's sentence has been so often postponed because he had made a deal to turn state's evidence, and the delays are to work out another deal to lighten his sentence. He could get up to 15 years in prison as a second offender on the robbery charge alone. MSNY has also been informed that Murphy has an interest in the Stone Wall, a club on Christopher Street, and several other gay clubs in New York. Our sources claim that the membership lists of some of these clubs are used to further extortion and shakedown schemes. Who is she? Who was she? Who does she hope to be? Craig Rodwell reports. The stone wall is still in operation, unfortunately. Hoping to save their declining business, the mafia management instituted go-go boys on platforms. February 25th, 1968. In the Washington Post, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover is quoted as saying, I certainly would not want any of the beatniks with sideburns and beards as employees of the Bureau. No member of the Mattachine Society or anyone who is a sex deviant will ever be appointed to the FBI. Immediately, on the same day, of course, Frank Kameny writes to the Post editors. Gentlemen, Mr. J. Edgar Hoover's comment that no member of the Mattachine Society will ever be appointed to the FBI is revealing. The Mattachine Society of Washington is an organization working by lawful and orderly means. For Mr. Hoover to make employment by his agency contingent upon working only for the good of acceptable people, but not for the good of unacceptable or unpopular or controversial people, indicates only how shallow is Mr. Hoover's grasp of the basic meaning of Americanism. Mr. Hoover states, in addition, that homosexuals are not employable by the FBI. Unfortunately, since Mr. Hoover's agency is responsible for clearances of individuals for jobs in many other places, the pernicious effects of his prejudices extend far beyond mere harm to his own agency. It is obvious both that private, consensual, adult, sexual conduct bears no rational relationship to eligibility for employment by the FBI or by anyone else. And that, of course, like all government agencies without exception, 
the FBI is not without its share of homosexual employees. I might point out that a few years ago, Mr. Hoover asked to be removed from the Washington Mattachine Society's mailing list, upon which he had been placed at the Society's initiative, along with many other government officials obviously needing education on homosexuality. Apparently, he was rather more afraid of appearing upon the Mattachine Society's lists than the Society is of appearing on Mr. Hoover's lists. Mr. Hoover's request was turned down. If his remark quoted in the post is any indication, he apparently did not profit by the society's literature, which he continued to receive, like the ignorance to which it is so closely related, entrenched prejudice is often invincible. Sincerely yours, Franklin E. Kameny. Hoover took no action against the Washington Mattachine for sending their newsletters, except that one meeting to intimidate them, back at the end of Season 2. The MSW offered a quid pro quo, destroy the Mattachine file and they'll take Hoover off their mailing list. He didn't acknowledge the request. Hoover didn't find the homophiles to be much of a threat, and he didn't have much reason to negotiate with them. It's also possible that the last thing Director Hoover wants is public attention on a rumor that has run rampant for decades throughout the government. A rumor about him and his associate director, Clyde Tolson. Chuck Rowland referred to the rumor under a pseudonym in 1955, at the end of season one. He implied Hoover was gay. Hoover and Tolson responded by telling their agents to take this crowd on for stoking the gay rumor about them which led the Bureau to vindictively get involved in one magazine's Supreme Court case, which totally backfired because the homophiles won, and then the FBI became legally unable to stop the homophiles from mailing their magazines that call them gay. Hoover has spent much of his career trying to stamp out the rumors. Most recently, in 1968, the Homosexual Handbook was published, listing Hoover as a gay celebrity. Hoover sends the FBI to pressure the publisher to stop printing the book, so they reissue it without Hoover's name listed. And, like FBI historian Douglas Charles has said, it's all just a rumor. We'll never know if Director Hoover was gay. But if he was, and it seems likely, right? Then perhaps the other rumor is true. The very juicy rumor that someone was blackmailing him. The rumor is tossed around by Allen Ginsberg and other gay personalities, mostly jokingly, but funny because it could be true. There's another gay man who might know Hoover's secret, and he's been running the largest, most organized known gay extortion operation in American history. As reported in the New York Times and the MSNY newsletter, Ed Murphy, the Skull, arranged for sexual encounters between young men chickens, his sex workers, to meet with closeted wealthy homosexuals. The mafiosos, bulls, then charge in, pretending to be cops, and demand payoff, or they'll reveal the homosexual secret. The NYPD called the case the Chickens and the Bulls. The FBI called it Operation Homex. The Mattachine Society of New York even helped law enforcement contact closeted gay victims of this scheme. The gay mafioso, the Skull, 
turned state's evidence and spilled the tea on his partners. The skull now walks free, even though he pled guilty, and his name vanished from the papers as the ring continued to unravel. The skull apparently had very good information and or very good leverage. And now he's managing illegal gay bars throughout New York City. The rumor is that two of the skull's many high-profile extortion victims might be the pair of homosexuals running the FBI who took on the entire queer crowd and encouraged the Lavender Scare because they were so certain being gay would get you blackmailed. You're a sad and pathetic man. You're a homosexual and you don't want to be. But there's nothing you can do to change it. Not all your prayers to your God. Not all the analysis you can buy in all the years you've got left to live. You may very well one day be able to know a heterosexual life, if you want it desperately enough. If you pursue it with the fervor with which you annihilate. But you'll always be homosexual as well. Always, Michael. Always. Until the day you die. Hoover also has a suspicious stance on organized crime. That it doesn't exist. The nation's top law enforcement official denies the existence of the mafia. Several newspapers point this out. Allen Ginsberg openly suspects that Hoover must be denying the mob's existence because they have something on him, a theory which historian David Carter will later support in 2004. In his research of the Skull's extortion ring, Carter found a newspaper reporting in the 1980s on the ring, quoting law enforcement sources who worked on the case, and claimed that their investigation turned up a photo of Hoover and Ed Murphy, the Skull, and the investigators reported that Assistant Director Clyde Tolson had, quote, fallen victim to the extortion ring, end quote. The paper also reported that after federal agents joined the investigation, the photo and the Tolson documents disappeared. Now, I know that sounds like some gay X-Files conspiracy, but if you'd like to explore for yourself, I recommend reading David Carter's Stonewall book or other resources in the episode notes. Whatever may or may not have motivated J. Edgar Hoover, the vicious purge of homosexuals throughout the federal government rages on in 1968. After another publicly reported round of purges, Frank Kameny writes to the Post editors again. Gentlemen, I note that the State Department has just gone through its annual American fertility rite by announcing the firing of a certain number of homosexuals in the preceding year. The ancient Aztecs or Mayans used to sacrifice virgins annually to propitiate the gods and to gain favors from them. The State Department sacrifices homosexuals annually to propitiate the House Appropriations Committee and to gain money from them. There is little difference. Sincerely yours, Franklin E. Kameny. Beware the hostile fag. When he's sober, he's dangerous. When he drinks, He's lethal.
Hey, Mattachinos. Yes, these are the final six episodes of Queer Serial, but don't worry. My Patreon will continue on after the show. I've got a slate of interviews lined up, many already recorded, and coming to you after the season is over. In the meantime, pop onto my Patreon for deeper dives into the research behind every episode. Recently, we looked at the Mattachine's phone call logs, which a lot of you loved. We looked at the Sir Pocket Lawyer book, mentioned in the show a few times. We've gone through Canadian homophile magazines, 1960s dirty gay coloring books, and the various erotic lesbian Belitis illustrations. Coming up, we'll look through Daughters of Belitis convention pamphlets and handwritten letters, letters and photos from the raid on California Hall, and some gay cruising guides. Check all that out, plus the bonus episodes and more, at patreon.com slash queer serial. Just click the link in the episode notes. Back to the show. Last year, 1967... President Johnson issued an executive order to set up a bipartisan Commission on Civil Disorders in an effort to find the truth of the causes of so much rebellion across the nation. The report is released in early 1968. The chairman writes, Police have come to symbolize white power, white racism, and white repression. And the fact is that many police do reflect and express these white attitudes— the atmosphere of hostility and cynicism is reinforced by a widespread belief among Negroes in the existence of police brutality and in a double standard of justice and protection, one for Negroes and one for whites. Martin Luther King Jr. reads the report and describes it as a physician's warning of approaching death with a prescription for life. How much, how much indifference, how much brutality... Do you expect people to be able to take? After all that marching, all that pain, all that damage, the country really did nothing, you know, except pass token laws and bills. But nothing changed. And the day would have to come. And everybody, you know, everybody knew it, Martin knew it. When the breaking point would be reached. Direct from our newsroom in Washington, in color, this is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King was standing on the balcony of a second-floor hotel room tonight when, according to a companion, a shot was fired from across the street. In the friend's words, the bullet exploded in his face. There was shock in Harlem tonight when word of Dr. King's murder reached the nation's largest Negro community. Men, women, and children poured into the streets. They appeared dazed. Many were crying. Yeah, I, I, I suppose the first concern, Bob, that everybody has, and it's obviously the one that Governor Buford Ellington has and the people of Memphis have and the people of Harlem have and other major Negro areas in the cities around the country is the, is the outbreak of violence. The National Guard, which had been on duty here uh, up until late last night, they have been recalled to duty and uh, are being put on the streets of Memphis right away. Of course, a great deal of confusion and chaos uh, resulting from the announcement here that Dr. King had died. When it's weary trying to confront the people with the necessity of, of assessing their own history, which is what has brought us to this place. So it's likely to get worse than it is to get better. 
We've been saying that for years. If I may say so, I did write a book called The Fire Next Time, which means the people bought, which obviously nobody read. We'll have to get worse, you know, since no real action has been taken. Meanwhile, a five-man independent commission opened its investigation yesterday into the causes of the student protest, a protest that is still going on. CBS News correspondent Robert Shackney reports. The student strike appears to have stopped most regular, most conventional instruction at Columbia. Replacing it are a variety of what the strikers call liberation classes. And to keep the strike going, student protesters have thrown picket lines in front of most academic buildings. And certainly this kind of ad hoc university education can't go on forever. But in the face of student rebellion, this is the only kind of education at the moment that seems to work. Columbia has consistently refused to alter these policies when the community has used normal means of protest. So we escalate in the walk. Number one, the stopping of the construction of the gym. Amen. And I still maintain the position that if you build it up, people in Harlem should blow it up. Number two. We have protested the use of the university to support the war in Vietnam by again discovering military means to resolve social and political problems. And say the students of Columbia University will not be students in a university that exploits black people. And we're not going to let anyone turn us around. Grayson Kirk had called to have cops come in. We stood in front of Lowe Library with our arms locked, faculty and students singing, we shall overcome, we shall not be moved. When we did not leave, the police in front of uh, me parted and the tactical patrol force came up with their helmets on and they formed the flying wedge and moved right through us, pushing us aside. Maybe a little violence would cure the situation. Who knows? Look at that, that's what the cops did. Over a thousand policemen, our students, have suffered the blows of fists, of clubs, chased down Broadway. Our faculty have received bloody noses, bloody heads, black eyes. They have been subject to every conceivable indignity on a part of an administration that has proved itself utterly incapable of maintaining order. So if we're talking about possible solutions to a condition of life in 1968, it's not so much what I can do as a white man, but what I can do. Yes, precisely, yes, what we can do. No, to save something which we have in common, to, um, to redeem something which is our common humanity. For it seems now more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. I thank you all of you, and now it's on to Chicago, and let's win there. Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible. He has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man. Say, we're tired of our white and black leaders, Jackie and Martin and Bobby, being killed. Just as surely as you are proud to be white, we're proud to be black. Black is beautiful, baby. It's pretty. Black is beautiful. Black is beautiful. Black power means dignity. This brother here, myself, all of us, were born with our hair like this, and we just wear it like this, because it's natural, because, uh, 
the reason for it, you might say, is like a new awareness among black people that their own natural appearance, physical appearance, is beautiful. Black is beautiful. This has changed because black people are aware. I do not believe that the educational process has truly been disrupted by this. I think it's just beginning. Two hundred and thirty-two GIs killed and nine hundred wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. And it is not a week. It is just over two days, the past two days, two of the worst we have known in Vietnam. I feel that opinions and feelings on this draft and upon war, any war or all wars, should be studiously avoided by the homophile movement. But do not allow yourself to be inducted. Since you are homosexual, the army is acting illegally in inducting you. 1968 is a year so packed with events in the movement for social justice, there's no way I could cover it all in an episode. But all of these events influenced the lives and actions of the homophile activists. After the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., 65,000 troops are sent to 130 cities. Uprisings are turning up everywhere. 39 more deaths and 20,000 arrests follow King's death. Four days of protests on Chicago's west side. Fires burn throughout D.C. And machine gun nests are set up on the Capitol steps. Monday, April 8th, 1968. Giddings and Kameny arrive at the Pentagon for their hearing with the Department of Defense. They're still representing fellow Mattachino Donald Crawford, who was fired by the DOD for picketing the Pentagon with Mattachine. After that hearing, with a guest appearance from Dr. Socarides, the DOD refused to reinstate Donald Crawford's security clearance because he knowingly broke the sodomy law. Giddings and Kameny hold a press conference in the hallway at the Pentagon before the next hearing, but no reporters show up. There's bigger news to cover right now. Giddings and Kameny go into the hearing and sit with three Department of Defense officials and defend their client. You have just seen Washington burning. You have seen the maneuverings of slimy Southern demagogues with their racist dogmas placing property interests above human interests. You need only to walk through downtown Washington to see the harvest which they are reaping. Government bureaucrats like yourselves are destroying lives with pettifogging legalism and frightened acquiescence to prejudice. If you choose to support morality and freedom, and if you choose to decide in consistency with the national interest, you have no choice but to give Mr. Crawford his clearance, common sense, and the national interest demand it. Requests have begun coming into Giddings and Kameny's mailboxes, asking them to write statements declaring individuals as homosexuals so they can take that letter to the draft board and avoid war, and then a possible dishonorable discharge. As the MSNY begins doing the same thing, writing letters for the draft board, Kameny and Giddings realize that Avoiding the draft 
is actually an incentive to coming out. They begin to push that message. Frank writes up a new pamphlet. Refraining from your induction, or 10 Steps to Freedom. He says be calm and honest. Be yourself. You are obvious enough. When the Department of Defense continues to deny another security clearance for one of their clients, Kameny and Giddings write to the DOD. Mr. Wentworth is becoming a minor national hero. We shall do our best to make of you a major national villain. Frank also writes to his friend and former lover at Columbia University, who participated in the school's recent protests. He also recently organized a homophile group at the school with Frank's help. I am strongly opposed to approaches which contribute to fragmentation and separatism in our society, particularly based upon as superficial and meaningless a criterion as skin color. Unfortunately, the mindless 60s don't believe in rules of procedure or in any sort of discipline, and they believe only in total consensus, not in any kind of majority rule. That is why your meetings go on for hours. That is also why they never accomplish anything truly meaningful. As pointed out in Newsweek, they believe in action without ideology. But meaningful action is impossible without ideology. And the so-called new left has accomplished absolutely nothing, and it won't. I don't think that they've realized that the only way they will ever get the unanimity that they insist upon is either to rule by force or fragment into smaller and smaller groups and form new groupings and alliances whenever a new question arises. Their deadly fear of any kind of delegated authority results in an endless change of chairmen, vanishing short terms, when they formalize their structure at all, instability, inability to create or to carry out long-range plans, and total non-accomplishment. Participatory democracy is a nice-sounding idea. It doesn't work. Keep in close touch. My greetings to all who know me at Columbia. Affectionately, Frank. In Chicago, Mattachine Midwest President Jim Bradford sends out a call as their city prepares for the Democratic Convention and all the outraged activists it'll bring. We need people willing to stick their necks out, walk the picket line, go on radio and television, and even get arrested if need be to bring real equality to the homosexual in Chicago and the Middle West. Summer, 1968. The latter. On Wednesday, June 19, 1968, the San Francisco Chronicle carried a front-page article by science correspondent David Perlman covering the June 18, 1968 talk by Dr. Charles W. Socarides before the American Medical Association, then meeting in San Francisco. Dr. Socorides, a psychiatrist at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City, characterized homosexuals as mentally ill and potentially curable. The fact that somebody is homosexual, a true obligatory homosexual, uh, automatically rules out the possibility that he will remain happy for long, in my opinion. The stresses and strains the psychic apparatus is subjected to over the years will cause him, in time, I think, to have increasing difficulties. 
one thinks ordinarily that he is becoming feminine. But in fact, he is attempting to achieve the very thing that he felt he was so lacking in childhood. He went on to advocate a government-supported National Center for Sexual Rehabilitation, where homosexuals desiring help would be treated humanely. Obviously, the homophile community had no alternative to rebutting this sort of biased and inaccurate treatment, and they did a fine job, too. Homophiles hold a well-received press conference to protest Dr. Sokorides' idea, which they compare to a final solution. The Society for Individual Rights, SIR, the Daughters of Belitis, the San Francisco Council on Religion and the Homosexual, and Dr. Joel Fort, a psychiatrist and lecturer at San Francisco State College and founder of the San Francisco Center for Special Problems, held a joint press conference at Glide Memorial Church's Fellowship Hall on June 20, 1968. At the same time, members of DOB and SIR handed out 2,000 leaflets to persons attending the June 20, 1968 meetings of the American Medical Association. Both the San Francisco Examiner and the San Francisco Chronicle cover the press conference in their June 21st, 1968 issues. Isn't he funny, Alan? Or as you might say, isn't he amusing? He's an amusing faggot, isn't he? Or as you might say, freak. That's what you called Emery, wasn't it? A freak? A pansy? My, what an antiquated vocabulary you have. I'm surprised you didn't say sodomite or pederast. You gotta let me bring you up to date. Now, this isn't so new, but it might be new to you. Have you heard the term closet queen? You know what that means? Two weeks later, homophiles returned to Philadelphia for the fourth annual reminder picket. On the 192nd anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence, American homosexuals call for the completion of the American Revolution. First-class citizenship for homosexuals. Government by the consent of the governed. Martha Shelley marches in a skirt. Tourists standing there eating their ice cream cones and watching us like the zoo has opened. Martha's getting frustrated with outdated modes of protest. Kameny is still insisting on the dress code at demonstrations put on by NACO groups. He also insists picketers march in a single-file line with 22 by 28-inch signs, identical messages on both sides, and five staples on each side. Martha can't even get the Daughters of Belitis to break the rules because they're more conservative than the rest of the NACO organizations. Gotta point out here that Mattachine and some other homophile groups are basically using the same tactics Hoover uses to make sure the FBI agents are taken seriously. Look like salesmen. Look professional. Is that how we're going to win them over? Dressing like them? National DOB President Shirley Willer is often unavailable, But since she has the connection to the anonymous wealthy donor they call Pennsylvania, it's difficult to criticize Shirley. And Shirley herself is getting frustrated with the DOB's inability to agree on anything. She decides it's time to eliminate the National Belitis Board and allow each chapter to function on its own, locally. The Mattachine did exactly that last season on the podcast, but Belitis does it for the exact opposite reason. Not as a grab for power, but a release of it, 
in order to give power to the people in each respective city. Shirley and her partner Marion write a new Belitis constitution. In a latter article titled Changing Times, Shirley writes that she would like all chapters to immediately undertake to be the effective nucleus of the daughters in their areas. We must face the problem of reaching the appropriate balance between what should be saved to preserve continuity and what must be replaced to ensure vitality. Helen Sandoz announces the upcoming 5th DOB convention in Denver, another location chosen because it's nobody's home turf. At this convention, there will be no speakers, no panels, no galas. They'll simply be discussing goals, the magazine, membership, and what this organization is even trying to do anymore. It will be a very important meeting for all members of DOB and friends who may wish to come and help plan our course for the next two years. This is a jam-packed business meeting. Every member should come to this meeting. Less than two dozen members show up. Shirley and Marion's new constitution, their attempt to create a new, lasting version of DOB, cannot be voted in with so few people. Shirley even had a heart attack just before traveling to Denver, and two guys from Sur stayed up all night making copies of the new constitution and collating them for her. At the empty convention, Shirley and Marion mail out materials important to each chapter. Rita Laporte is chosen as DOB president, and lesbiana book reviewer Barbara Greer takes over as editor of the latter. Former president Shirley Willer is heartbroken. She and Marion walk out of the convention's hotel, get in their camper, and just start driving. They quit the movement altogether. Helen Sandoz and Stella Rush are also ready for a break from DOB. Denver is the end of the road for many daughters. In fact, in the book Before Stonewall, Dell and Phyllis will credit Shirley's role as the cause of the Daughters of Belitis' ultimate downfall to come. Jeanette Howard Foster, the bibliographer from the Kinsey Institute, writes in the latter, During my service at the Kinsey Institute for Sex Research, I learned that homosexuals are homogenous in nothing except their preference for their own sex. When one considered the geographical, racial, economic, intellectual, and social differences among the national members of DOB, what can be expected but sharp variations in interest and sympathy? A considerable number of the sisterhood have a strong need to dominate, even though some may look delicately feminine. Helen Sandoz's final issue of the latter, titled The Changing Scene, features bright counterculture artwork with writing by Martha Shelley. Under Barbara Greer's new editorship, she doubles the page count and leans into lesbian feminist writing. And she drops the magazine's subtitle, A Lesbian Review. Barbara Greer picks up many new subscribers and loses many old ones, too. What's so fucking funny? Life. Life's a goddamn laugh riot. You remember life. In the East Village, Jack Nichols and Lige Clark decide to try being together again. 
they get an apartment near Tompkins Square Park, light up the incense, and eat LSD lace jello. Hank and Larry are lovers. Not just roommates. No man has a roommate after he's 30 years old. If they're not lovers, they're sisters. By leaving Jack back in D.C., Lige forced him to reevaluate, to loosen up. Jack lets go of the idea that he needs to feel like the man of the relationship. He realizes he's been role-trained by heteronormativity. He'll later write a book about it called Men's Liberation, as in men being liberated from the constraints of masculinity. Jack and Lige finally reconnect. Jack shows Lige the writings of Walt Whitman. Lige shows Jack tantric yoga. He teaches classes. One of his students is Kay Lehusen. Jack gets a job as an editor for Countrywide, a mass circulation magazine company covering dozens of topics. Pretty soon, one of those editors hires Jack and Lige to write a column for a new sex-positive magazine called Screw. Theirs is the first uncensored gay column in a straight magazine, a magazine which will become the nation's biggest-selling underground publication. And even closeted people can buy it without anyone suspecting they're reading the one little column about gay sex. Jack and Lige, of course, named their column after the newsletter for the Washington Mattachine Society, The Homosexual Citizen. Notes of gratitude from gay readers fill Lige and Jack's mailbox at Screw. I do love it. I don't care who knows it. Don't say that. Why not? It's the truth. Back in D.C., their friend Frank Kameny is left behind. He's preparing for the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations to be hosted in Chicago, just as the Democratic National Convention is beginning. He's also helping his new protege, Bob Martin, start the Student Homophile League at Columbia University, which the school's lawyers are trying to stop. And, as is traditionally Mattachine, Frank is fighting with another chapter's president in a different city. I am writing with care here. I trust that you will read this with equal care. I write sincerely and with no intent at sarcasm when I say that I was pleased to receive your letter of June 14th. Pleased because it represents the first letter which I have received from you in a very long time, which attempts reasoned communication and exchange of ideas instead of tirade, polemic, recrimination, casting of aspersions, expression of baseless suspicion, attribution of discreditable motive, non-cooperation, and the like. I was speaking at Ohio University when I first heard of the chattering of the Columbia faggot group. I just got back late last week and walked into the biggest fucking mess I ever had on my hands. Boy, when you and Barbara meddle and interfere, you certainly do a good job of it. New York's homosexuals spoke with one voice, Mattachine. Soon it'll be like the Negro movement. The cacophony will be so loud you won't be able to hear any voices at all. Just a meaningless roar. Organize New Orleans or something, but for God's sakes, stay out of New York. Kameny and Leish have had their differences, but despite disagreements, they still manage to work together. After all the shade, Frank talks about how homosexuals should be considered the medical experts on homosexuality. 
but that not every homosexual agrees. Within the movement, I point out that many of the people in our own movement are often the unwitting purveyors of the same attitude. Read Hal Call's remarks sometime as an extreme case. Now, I take credit for a good many of the worthwhile ideas floating around in this movement and for the phrasing of them. This is the point that we must instill in the homosexual community a sense of the worth of the individual homosexual, a sense of high self-esteem. We must counteract the inferiority which all of society inculcates into him in regard to his homosexuality. He sends off his letter to Dick in New York and writes another to the DOB in Chicago, worried the upcoming homophile convention won't get media coverage because of the DNC. Frank writes, There are murmurings of civil disorders in connection with the convention. August 11, 1968. Activists from 14 homophile groups nationwide arrive in Chicago. The homophiles meet at The Trip, the recently raided gay bar near historic Tower Town, where Mattachine Midwest meets. The bar is currently shut down, waiting to go to trial. The NACO meeting is very organized, following Robert's rules of order as usual. The 75 delegates and guests spend the week intensely debating the movement's future in a radicalized society. For Kameny and Giddings, it's a week of wins. Two years ago, when these groups met in Kansas City, Frank struggled to get any delegates to support him. Now, in Chicago, everyone seems to have his back. The delegates pass a homosexual bill of rights to agree on what they're fighting for. Huge. Some of those things are... Legalizing consensual gay sex, the right to cruise, the right to security clearances, and military service, and jobs, and for the police to stop harassing us and keeping lists of us, and for gay sex to be taught in sex education classes. And as far as I know, that last one still hasn't happened 50 years later. Then, at Giddings and Kameny's suggestion, the legal committee passes a motion to encourage creating test cases to challenge anti-gay laws. On Saturday, at the end of the convention, Frank gets up to speak again. The other day on television, I saw Stokely Carmichael before a group of Negroes almost chanting, Black is beautiful. To a Negro living in a society in which white, snow, purity, and good are all equated together, and black, evil, darkness, dirt, and ugliness are all equated together, Carmichael's tactic is understandable and necessary and desirable. Within our somewhat different framework, we need the same kind of thing. Our people need to have their self-esteem bolstered, singly and as a community. People who are truly equal and truly not inferior do not seriously consider acquiescing to the majority and changing themselves. To submit to the pressures of immoral societal prejudice is immoral. Self-respecting people do not so submit. Self-respect is what I am trying to inculcate into my people, even if you are not. 
In parallel to Carmichael, homosexuality is good, positively and without reservation. The only people in all the world who are doing this are the pitifully small handful of us in the homophile movement, and our people are very sensitive to any squeamishness and half-heartedness on our part. We will get there a lot faster if we encourage our own people to hold up their heads, look the world in the eye, and say, gay is good, without any reservations, and face the world with solidarity and self-confidence. Their new slogan, a way to announce to the world that they are morally good people in the simplest of terms. Gay is good. Barbara Giddings seconds the motion, and the resolution passes unanimously. The owners of the hosting bar, The Trip, will soon go to the Illinois Supreme Court to become the first gay bar to challenge the Chicago Police Department, and they'll win and reopen. As the NACO convention closes, the other gay bars on the north side of Chicago hang signs on their windows announcing, closed for two weeks for redecoration. They know cops are sweeping through town, like other cities have done in preparation for world's fairs and political conventions. Cops are cleaning up undesirable businesses before tourists and activists pour in for the DNC. Chicago police target black neighborhoods especially, parking mysterious windowless vans outside the homes of known activists. The new left, the hippies, the yippies, students and anti-war activists, activists of all kinds, plan to stage demonstrations in Chicago. The FBI has been watching, planting informants as usual, and arranging blackmail to sow chaos inside the activist groups. And the week of the Democratic Convention, a heat wave hits Chicago. You can decorate his house for him, Emery, and he can get you out of jail the next time you're arrested on a morals charge. Two days after the NACO convention ends, August 20th, 1968, CPD raids two large gay bars, Sam's on Clark and Division and the Annex near Clark and Diversity. Sam's bartender, Jim Flint, remembers his boss paying off the cops, but they raid anyway and shut down the bars before the DNC starts. Seventeen people are arrested. Mattachine Midwest writes an open letter to the city superintendent, citing one of the arrested people, who says a cop raiding the annex said, you're a part of a minority group and should expect to be treated like it. Mattachine's open letter is copied and spread through the gay bars. Two more days later, August 22nd. In Old Town, where the gay neighborhood migrated after the era of Tower Town, two teenagers are out walking. One is a 15-year-old Native American boy from South Dakota, Jerome Johnson. The other is Bobby Joe Maxwell, an 18-year-old black man. It's late at night. They're stopped by an officer for a stop-and-quiz, a common Chicago police practice used to intimidate minorities. The officer, John Manley, will say that the younger of the two, Jerome, pulled out a gun, fired a shot, and ran. So, Officer Manley will say he had no choice but to fire at him, shooting 15-year-old Jerome Johnson in the heart. Officer Manley then arrests Bobby Maxwell on a weapons charge for carrying a hunting knife. Word spreads quickly. 
An angry rally and a memorial march are held in Lincoln Park on Sunday, August 25th, the day before the Democratic National Convention. Officer John Manley is just beginning his career as a longtime villain in Chicago's black and gay communities and for his own female co-workers. Following the memorial on Sunday night, a group of yippies and gays, including Allen Ginsberg, alm quietly in Lincoln Park, past the mayor's 11 p.m. curfew. Police charge into the park, swinging batons and releasing tear gas on the meditating queers. They go running into a nearby gay bar, the Inner Circle. Mayor Daly gives police and the National Guard an order to shoot to kill protesters next time they don't obey. And so, the 1968 DNC begins. While we're here in Chicago, this place is a shambles. It's a police state. One's aware of the horrors of the world here, the smell of old blood, the shrieking of the pigs as they're slaughtered in the morning. All this reminds one of, of life and death. So in a sense, I do feel home in a way, but not happy. The next day, August 26th, the convention starts at the International Amphitheater on the south side with Aretha Franklin opening. The only good thing to come out of this, really. Thousands of activists gather in the South Loop in Grant Park. These anti-war demonstrators are from the New Left, progressives who grew up in the hopeful era of JFK, now disappointed by a never-ending war and the American government's constant abuse of its own citizens. Some of these activists are yippies from the Youth International Party. Many activists come from the Students for a Democratic Society, and there are many from many other groups. These groups requested permits to protest in the city. Mayor Daley refused. But... That isn't going to stop 10,000 anti-establishment activists with a right to peacefully protest. Inside the convention, it's tense. With LBJ stepping down, Democrats with varying points of view see their chance to jump in and influence the war, one way or another. The two potential presidential nominees are in opposing positions. Vice President Hubert Humphrey supports the war. Senator Eugene McCarthy is against And while they're debating, everyone knows there's a mob of activists outside making demands. The scene inside is uncomfortable. For everyone watching the convention at home, the entire frame of the television screen is a packed crowd of men in suits pushing at each other, packed so tightly that no one can move. I'm looking down at Edwin Newman in the middle of a huge bunch of security people. How this this got started, we don't know. There's a lot of pushing. Check with our state chairman. He's an elected delegate. With billy clubs, clearing people out. They're not using them on people. They're carrying them. And they're dragging everybody. Six policemen came in here, some of them wearing the blue helmets of the Chicago Police Force, and they are dragging out of here the people who were involved in this. That's the situation here. It hasn't changed. It's still bad. As the delegates debate into the night, police confront activists in Lincoln Park. Order! 
The country is mostly focused on the convention inside, though. A large audience is particularly transfixed on ABC's coverage, which ABC really needs as the lowest rated of the three networks. They went for an unconventional type of coverage. Rather than having an anchor talk through the convention live, they have two intellectuals debate for an hour each night during both conventions. For their two intellectuals, ABC hired founding editor of the conservative magazine National Review, William F. Buckley. And they also hired Gore Vidal. I've been quoting Gore Vidal since episode one, but we most recently heard him give all those fabulous remarks in the CBS Reports gay documentary. Vidal's most recent book is huge, Myra Breckenridge. It's a ridiculous camp satire written as the diary of a trans woman. William Buckley, the conservative in these debates, is a friend of Ronald Reagan. You can imagine what he thinks of Myra Breckenridge author Gore Vidal, an obvious homosexual. Buckley cracks all sorts of jokes about Myra and Vidal's morals. Each night, millions of Americans are captivated by this unique form of news coverage, a news style that will become the norm to a terrifying degree. Buckley and Vidal are almost completely opposed to each other politically, a feeling that millions watching can relate to. Both think the other is incredibly dangerous for the country. The debates quickly become an absolute catfight. You, you, you may have forgotten that a few moments ago we were treated to Mr. Gore Vidal, the, the playwright, saying uh, that after all, Ronald Reagan was nothing more than a, quote, aging Hollywood juvenile actor. Now, to, to begin with, everybody is aging. <laughs> Uh, even uh, even you are, Bill. Bill. Oh, you are, Bill. Yes. Yeah, so, so Perceptibly before, so, so therefore, I... that adjective didn't contribute anything uh, extraordinary to the human understanding. Yes, but if you play, it. if you play this sort of a game, you can say, look, I don't think it's right to present Mr. Gore Vidal as a political commentator of any consequence, since he is nothing more than uh, than a literary producer of uh, of, of a perverted uh, Hollywood-minded prose. Now, now, Bill, I, I, I think this time uh, for the very simple reason that he said that... Uh, now, Bill, if I may say... Just, so, just, I, just I, as I, I think ABC I has the right, idea, Bill, just as I think not, ABC has the authority now, Bill, to invite, I'm almost through. No, you're not, in every sense. Think, just, just, just <laughs> Let Mr. Buckley finish this sentence, then just Mr. Vidal, I assure you time to refute That ABC has the authority to invite the author of Myra Breckenridge to comment comment on Republican politics. How about Mr. Vidal's answer to that now? Well, as usual, Mr. Buckley with his enormous and thrilling charm, uh, manages to get away from the issue toward the comedy. He's always to the right, I think, and almost always in the wrong. And you certainly must, uh, Bill, maintain your reputation as being the Marie Antoinette to the right wing and continually imposing your own rather bloodthirsty neuroses on, on a political campaign. On the second day, viewers across the country watch the convention from the inside as CBS anchor Walter Cronkite talks to Dan Rather, reporting on the scene. He's attempting to interview someone who's being removed from the convention when the reporter himself is stopped by security. Dan Rather? What's I'm your name, And what is your name, sir? Take your hands off of me. Dan Rather. Unless you intend to arrest me, don't, t- don't push me, please. I know you will, but don't push me. Take your hands off of me unless you intend to arrest me. I don't know what's going on, but this, these are security people apparently around Dan. 
and obviously getting roughed up. We tried to talk to the man, and we got uh, bodily pushed out of the way. This is the kind of thing that's been going on outside the hall. This is the first time we've had it happen inside the hall. I'm sorry to be out of breath, but somebody belted me in his stomach doing that. I think we've got a bunch of thugs here, Dan. If I may be permitted to say so. Well, mind you, Walter, I'm all right. I, it's, uh, it's all in a day's work. Later, Gore Vidal is in his car, headed to an event with Arthur Miller and Paul Newman. They pass protesters and cops and drive into a cloud of tear gas. Tomorrow is the day that this operation has been pointing for for some time. We are going to make our way to the amphitheater by any means necessary. The following day, August 28th, while the delegates at the convention debate the country's role in the Vietnam War, about 10,000 people meet in Grant Park. Even though today is the only day they've actually been granted a permit to gather, the peaceful protesters prepare to face off with the CPD. 23,000 police and National Guardsmen stand by to sweep through the demonstration. Police form a human barricade around Grant Park, intending to keep protesters from marching to the convention. In the afternoon, one of the demonstrators gets up on the band shell and lowers the American flag, and police begin pummeling their way through the crowd, beating protesters with their batons. Trash and chunks of concrete come flying toward the police. They are provoking us, but we do not want to confront them now. Move back, Meanwhile, the convention votes to support the war in Vietnam. Protesters in the park make their way onto Michigan Avenue. Under the flood of news camera lights, the police do what they do best. They beat protesters and reporters in what will be called the Battle of Michigan Avenue. Less than an hour later, the news stations decide to turn from convention coverage to the riots outside. The country finally sees what the police are capable of, for everyone. The majority of the people at this protest are white, and many of them are journalists and reporters. Mr. Chairman, most delegates to this convention do not know that thousands of young people are being beaten in the streets of Chicago. And for that reason, I request the suspension of the rules to relocate the convention in another city. Wisconsin is not recognized for that purpose. And with George McGovern as president of the United States, we wouldn't have to have Gestapo's tactics in the streets of Chicago. For the minority communities watching, people of color and queers, they already know what the police are capable of. Many Americans refuse to take it anymore. Uh, it 
It's like living under a Soviet regime here. The guards, the soldiers, the agents provocateur on the parts of the police you've seen, the roughing up. There's very little that we can say after those pictures. That would be in any way adequate. Let Mr. Buckley comment now. The effort here, not only on your program tonight, but during the past two or three days in Chicago, has been to institutionalize this complaint uh, so as to march forward and say that we have got a sort of a fascist situation. These people came here with no desire other that anybody has ever been able to prove than to hold peaceful demonstrations. I can prove it. I, prove it. I was 14 windows above that gang last night, and the chant between 11 o'clock and 5 o'clock in this morning from four or 5,000 voices uh, was sheer utter obscenities directed at the President of the United States. I say it is remarkable that there was as much restraint shown as was shown, for instance, last night by cops who were out there for 17 hours without inflicting a single wound on a single person, even though that kind of disgusting stuff was being thrown at them and at all of American society. Mr. Vidal, wasn't it a provocative act to try to raise a Viet Cong flag in the park in the film we just saw? Uh, wouldn't that invite uh, raising a Nazi flag in World War II would have had similar consequences. People in the United States uh, happen to believe that the United States policy is wrong in Vietnam and the Viet Cong are correct in wanting to organize their country in their own way politically. If it is a novelty in Chicago, that is too bad. But I assume that the point of the American democracy and some is you can express to any point of view you want. Nazi. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro Nazi, and the answer is that they were they were well treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care. As far as I'm concerned, the only sort of pro or crypto Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Uh, Failing that, that's, I would that's, only that's say that we names. can't have. Now listen, you the right yeah. of the Stop calling me a crypto Nazi. Let's, let's stop or calling I'll names. Stop you and in your get goddamn get face, and you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's go back to his pornography and stop making any allusions of Nazism to somebody who was infantry in the last war. You were not infantry, as a matter of fact, you didn't Now listen, you queer. Stop calling me a crypto-Nazi, or I'll sock you in the goddamn face and you'll stay plastered. You gotta watch this clip. The very second William Buckley calls Gore Vidal a queer... Vidal's eyes flash with total joy. He smiles so big because he knows he won. Buckley cracked. He called him one of the worst slurs on TV and then threatened him. It's symbolic of all the fights around the DNC. I'll cover some more about what happened to Buckley and Vidal's relationship after the debates in the credits. Now listen, you the right yeah. of the Stop calling me a crypto Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names you in your goddamn face. And you'll stay plastered. The next day, the final day of the convention, pro-war Humphrey accepts the Democratic nomination. My fellow Democrats, I proudly accept the nomination of our party. Al Cap, political satirist, jokes at the convention. Of course, now that the election is over, will Bill Buckley and Gore Vidal kiss and make up? I think Vidal would like that. Big laughs. Outside, hundreds of protesters try to march on the convention. Police release the tear gas, and the convention comes to a close. A candlelight march against the war walks through the streets of downtown Chicago.
Okay, short story long, but it's an important piece of the movement. And here's the most important part. The official story by the Chicago Police Department is that 589 people were arrested and 100 protesters were injured. The Medical Committee for Human Rights will later report that more than 1,100 people got treatment for injuries from the DNC protests. And shortly after, a national commission will appoint a team to determine the cause of these violent outbreaks. Their report will use hours of films, thousands of photos, and thousands of interviews to determine that, in some cases, protesters did provoke police, but police responded with violence. The Walker Report says... The nature of the response was unrestrained and indiscriminate police violence on many occasions, particularly at night. That violence was made all the more shocking by the fact that it was often inflicted upon persons who had broken no law, disobeyed no order, made no threat. These included peaceful demonstrators, onlookers, and large numbers of residents who were simply passing through or happened to live in the areas where confrontations were occurring. To read dispassionately the hundreds of statements describing at first hand the events of Sunday and Monday nights is to become convinced of the presence of what can only be called a police riot. The 1968 DNC inspires the New Left movement, a movement demanding peace, civil rights, women's rights, and gay rights. A hundred new Students for a Democratic Society chapters open across the country, and instead of blaming the police, like the evidence says to, the U.S. government accuses eight activists of conspiracy to incite a riot. They go on trial in Chicago. The senior prosecutor, Tom Foran, calls defense witness Allen Ginsberg a goddamn fag on the witness stand. And while he's prosecuting the trial, Tom Foran tells a parents' meeting at Loyola High that all the activists on trial are fags, except probably not the Black Panther, Bobby Seale. Foreign tells the parents, this country's children have been lost to the freaking fag revolution. Of course, Chicago gay activists immediately start printing the buttons. Mattachine Midwest reports, The whole world saw the hatred and violence of which Chicago police are capable. Whether one's sympathies are with the demonstrators or not, the police tactics during the week of the convention belong in a history of Nazi Germany. Mattachine Midwest calls a press conference to bring publicity to the raids and bar closures. Entrapment still rises, particularly by Officer John Manley. Jim Bradford and Pearl Hart update the pamphlet, Your Rights Have Arrested, and print thousands. Frank Kameny writes, Yes, our movement in many ways is ready for its Rap Browns and Carmichaels. Kameny and Giddings return to the Pentagon to represent another homosexual determined to get his security clearance back. They present a recent issue of the Wall Street Journal, which ran an article on their client, an open homosexual ousted from Bell Telephone Labs. Giddings and Kameny argue that he can't be blackmailed with a homosexual secret if his sexuality has been published in this major publication. Department of Defense lawyer Roland Morrow counters, saying... There may come a day, gentlemen, when the homosexual in our society is not considered as an outcast, guilty of criminal behavior, and an object of derision and humor, and Broadway plays which portray him as sick, driven, and full of hatred. But, gentlemen, we submit that the appeal board of the Department of Defense, sitting this ninth day of September, must look at the world as it is, and not as it might be if the applicant's counsel's dreams were to come true. 
The board must face facts, the reality of what is here and now and not what might be when the Mattachine millennia has arrived. The Civil Service Commission continues to be vague about whether or not they'll allow gays back into government jobs. But it's not a definitive no. It's a sort of half-step forward. Having watched Giddings and Kameny's cases, the ACLU then advises all attorneys and their chapters nationwide to publicize any gay cases against the federal government. Tell your clients to come out publicly. As the general public continues to discuss human rights on all fronts, homosexuals and the gender variant are now often included in that conversation. The whole world watches them on TV, in movies, off-Broadway, in books. The Wall Street Journal features a front-page article about gays demanding a piece of the action. Craig Rodwell's hymnal responds by reporting, It is said that the Wall Street Journal is six months ahead of society in indicating trends. Americans who tune into The Tonight Show see Chriswell, a TV psychic, who seems to know a thing or two about the future. He says he's publishing a book which predicts homosexual cities all over the country rising up in the near future. He kind of does predict the radical fairies. At the movies, if you're old enough to get into an X-rated movie, you can see lesbians with a sex scene in Robert Aldrich's new film, The Killing of Sister George. It's becoming clear to America that the queers are not going anywhere. It's not always like it happens in plays. Not all faggots bump themselves off at the end of the story. September 18th, 1967. Those two cops who came to visit us have informed me that they discovered one of the cops whose name I gave them was taking payoffs from the club, the Stone Wall, and he's been dismissed from the force. The other one is still under investigation and surveillance, though they think he's clean. They're not going to take any action against the Stone Wall. Next week, Episode 10, The Walls of Jericho. Thank you so much for listening. We are winding down to the big finale. And I think this is relevant to this episode. If you live in Chicago, please get in touch with your older person to ask them to support ECPS, Empowering Communities for Public Safety. Yes, that means defund the police and reallocate money to more effective resources in the community and create democratic police accountability in Chicago. Follow the Chicago Alliance at Carper Now on Instagram and get more info at bit.ly slash support ECPS. There are links in the episode notes. Then chanting, kill the pigs, they began bombarding... If you like Queer Serial, please give her a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help the podcast reach new listeners. It really does help the show reach new listeners if you leave a quick review or a five-star rating. Thank you so very much. You can also follow the show on Instagram at Queer Serial to see the real events and people from every episode. This week, including photos from the NACO conference, the fourth annual reminder picket, Martha Shelley, Sylvia Rivera, Boys in the Band, all of it. 
Thanks to everyone who has donated to support the production of the podcast and upcoming projects in the works right now. If you want to support the show, go to my Patreon at patreon.com slash queer serial for lots of bonus content. Or you can head over to queerserial.com slash donate. Thank you. Also, thanks to the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. We had a documentary filmmaker call us and ask for the photo from the Nacho Conference, and I almost lost it on the phone. The Nacho Conference. So the NACO Conference, and I was like, there wasn't, like, things were crazy, so I was like, you know what, can you send us an email to find that? But I was just like... (laughs) Please call it the Nacho Conference. That's Please. so funny. When I before I knew what it really was, it seems like reason, Nacho. Yeah, I was like, "Am I gonna have to say Nacho? It's gonna Which seem is great. so silly." Which is great. I love it. Um, it's so good. Check out QueerSerial.com for more resources. If the FBI history was interesting to you, I highly recommend watching the new movie, Judas and the Black Messiah. It takes place in the same time period as these episodes. In fact, that's your homework. Everyone, go home and watch Judas and the Black Messiah. It's incredible. There are also links to all the various films and clips from this episode in the episode notes, including the Sylvia Rivera audio. Miss Rivera's audio is used courtesy of Making Gay History. You can find the Making Gay History podcast on all major podcast platforms and at makinggayhistory.com. The community is always embarrassed by drag queens. What do you think? Why do I think? Yeah. No, it's not why I think I know. Okay, why do you know? Because straight society always looks... Oh, well, a faggot always dresses in drag or he's too effeminate. You got to be who you are. Mm -hmm. Passing is like saying a light-skinned black woman or black male passing for white. And I refuse to pass. You couldn't have passed. No, I couldn't pass. Not in this life. No, not in this life. No, I just like being myself. It's fun being Sylvia. It's fun playing the game. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media or email me at queerserial at gmail.com if you'd like transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors, thank you all so much for recording through the pandemic. It means the world to me. Zoom recordings and voice memos on your phones helped keep this little radio drama alive this year. Thank you so much. Martha Shelley was played by my dear friend Eliana Stone. Students were played by Maggie Smith and Mike Lysak. Martha's boss, the administrator, was played by Faye Camp, my granny. Joan Kent by Marissa Barbara Clayton. Craig Rodwell by Sean Calusa. Dick Leish by Evan Kepnick. Director Hoover by John Roth. Frank Kameny by Albert Williams. Their new slogan, gay is good. I never knew that's where that phrase came from. Isn't that great? It just seemed like natural, but wow. Jim Bradford by Andrew Casey. Helen Sandoz by Tina Munoz-Pandaya. Shirley Willer's final appearance by the fabulous actress Heidi Dove. One more, because this is the important ending. The whole world is watching. Kay Lehusen by Katie Spleet and Barbara Giddings by Clarissa Janelle. Thanks, everybody. The fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. I can't believe you're even still listening this long. You're crazy, girl. Bye. Do not allow yourself to be inducted. Since you are homosexual, the army is acting illegally in inducting you. Great. That's just very interesting because...
that's the same thing that we fought about in Gay Lib, whether we should be connected to the anti-war movement or the civil rights movement, or just make it gay-centered. That's exactly what I was about to ask you, how you felt about, how did you feel about the draft, being eligible for the draft? Oh, well, so, I mean, for the draft, oh, that's, I mean, it was sort of funny, because I was always told by my family that if I was drafted, so like when I was growing, like in high school, I was coming yeah. of age, uh, that I had, because I'd had heart surgery as a child, that I would probably never, that I would never have to worry about the draft. And then as I came to realize I was gay, I said, and then there's that. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I, when, they, when all the shit started going on with don't ask, don't tell, you know, under Obama and stuff, I'm saying, you know, one of the things I liked about being gay was that you didn't have to go to the army. Right. You couldn't, but I also, I see it, you know, so. All of our, like, landmark achievements are things I don't even want anyway. I don't want Well, wouldn't marriage. it be ironic? <laughs> wouldn't it be, well, exactly, right. Wouldn't it be ironic if, if uh, we fought for, we fought for gays to be able to be, and then they reinstated the draft? <laughs> Uh, that would be horrible. Exactly. I'm glad I just passed the mark. Right. I mean, that's the point, right? Yeah. When that the whole thing came up of Trump possibly reinstating right. the draft again, I was like, first a lot of, all, of it. A lot of it, though, had to do with the fact that people under the draft very often young people would go in and then find out they were gay. Yeah. Yeah. And then that then you're dishonorably discharged. Yeah. Did they ever pull your number or whatever the? Oh, that's is? a great story. Um, you're recording. Of course I'm recording. Okay, because you can plug this in. Yeah. Um, so when I when I was 17 is when I first went to college at Indiana University. So that was before I was draftable, but I was already in college and therefore had a student deferment. And then in 1969, so when I was now 18, of course, I then registered with the draft, uh, with the Selective Service. And, and then... Um, it must have been 1970 when they had switched to the lottery systems. So that was a big change when they switched to the lottery system, which was supposed to make it more fair, because uh-huh. otherwise when it was just random, people were saying that black kids were getting prioritized for the draft and poor kids were getting prioritized for the draft. So the, the, the lottery was designed to prevent that kind of privilege from being a factor. Uh, so I was... I had dropped out of Indiana University after, uh, like, around at the end of the of the fall '69 semester. So I was a first semester sophomore. I dropped out of IU. I came back home, and I went. God, I haven't thought of this in years. Um, so I was now 19. No, I was now yeah, I was now 19. It was early 1970, and I went to a party. A, not a gay party either, just like some friends of mine from college, some older friends of mine actually, uh, were in town from IU, and God, I haven't thought of this in years. <laughs> it might have been like a New Year's Eve thing, because I have this memory, they were driving, and we were going to visit somebody in the suburbs, so they were taking me to the party, because I lived in Chicago, and they were visiting Chicago from Bloomington, and I remember being in the, ra- being in the car in the, in the back seat while they were driving, Names were Tom and Melison. They were a couple, and uh, the the song "Jesus Christ Superstar" came on the radio. It was the first time they'd released the single. Oh, exciting! Because they released that as a single before they released the whole album. Yeah. But we had heard about that there was going to be this rock opera about Jesus Christ, so I, I knew what it was. So it was sort of cool. We went to this party. The woman who was giving the party put, you know, had food, and I ate some 
super creamy fruit thing, and I had a gallbladder attack. Huh. I was 20 years old, and young guys don't get gallbladder attacks, but it just did something to me. I was in horrible pain. I went to Northwestern Hospital. They had my gallbladder out on an emergency basis. And while I was in the hospital, I got my induction notice. Oh, my God. And so, because I had thought to myself by this time, you know, if I'm inducted, I'll tell them I'm gay and it's not going to be a big deal. But, um, but it happened when I was in the hospital. And so the doctor wrote a, a letter to this draft board saying he's, in, he's sick. And I was given a deferment, medical deferment, but it was only, it was like six months, except I don't, they never got back to me. It was, I went on like some bad, you know, on backlist. I was backlisted. I never got pulled again. That's and that was incredibly lucky. It was well, it was weird. And it was cuz it was it was when they had started the uh, the, the the lottery thing. Mm-hmm. Cuz my name was so pulled. They just didn't pull your name again. Right. I guess that's the reason, right. That is incredibly lucky. Isn't that a funny story? But you were ready to out yourself. Oh, I was ready to out myself. Wow. It was no I mean no big deal. And you know, we were all talking about it. That was a big that was a big thing talking about. But what strikes me um, from the script is that at the gay liberation movement there was a big debate over whether the gay liberation should only be about gay rights or if it should be part of the social revolution mm-hmm. and you know communism and socialism and of course racial racist you know racism and civil rights and then the anti-war movement and not that we didn't you know support those issues but not everybody did or not everybody at least agreed with the strategies i mean it really goes to this whole thing of putting the moderates out there in front and then knowing that we'll send out the, the radicals yeah. to scare them if you don't come through. And that was why gay liberation in Chicago, which was started at the University of Chicago, splintered into gay liberation, which was really thinking of gay liberation as part of this liberation movement, uh-huh. and then the gay alliance, which was just gay stuff. And they were northern. They tended to be a little bit older. Gary Chichester? Yes. They tended to be a little older and certainly more independent and more north sidey and and tended to be apolitical except about gay issues yes. and there were indeed people there who were pretty conservative in other respects um, and then of course gay liberation just went up, just drifted away because people left school and people yeah. went you know, oh hello Alan feel better? this is where you came in isn't it? off in this inclement weather you'll never get a cab revolution complete 